Engaging Leader, episode 37, how to engage others in creating the future. Does your leadership inspire trust, passion, and action? Welcome to the Engaging Leader Podcast with Jesse Leahy, consultant, writer, and speaker. Jesse has helped executives engage hundreds of thousands of people. Join us now for principles to communicate, engage, and lead with greater impact. Welcome to the show, leaders. How do you inspire people to take action toward a shared goal? To answer that question, I'm pleased to welcome back to our show, Terry Pierce, author of Leading Out Loud, A Guide for Engaging Others and Creating the Future. This is the best-selling guide to authentic leadership communication. The newest edition of this book hit bookstores earlier this year. Terry had many years of experience at IBM and Charles Schwab. He's taught leadership communication courses at Berkeley and the London Business School. And for the last couple of decades, has been coaching and consulting with CEOs and elected leaders. Terry, we enjoyed having you on episode 33. Welcome back to the Engaging Leader Show. Oh, it's great to be back. Thanks for having me, Jesse. I appreciate it. A major theme of your book is that an effective leader has to go beyond telling people what to do and expecting compliance. You need to engage people to create a mutually desirable future. Yes, that's correct. In fact, that's a, that's a good synopsis of exactly what the book is about. And then uh, what I try to do is, through example and story and and some a little bit of didactic and a little bit of science, show people how how best they can develop themselves into that kind of a leader. To create an engagement in a change or a vision, you recommend that a leader start by writing a personal leadership communication guide. I think it would surprise many people that you want them to start by writing. Why, why do you have this emphasis on writing? Well, it actually applies a discipline. Uh, to authenticity. And so often, if we actually do sit down and write, we've all had, I think most of us, any, any of us that have gone to school and done any kind of uh, uh, writing assignments, we're always surprised by what comes out when you sit down and put pen to paper or you sit down to a keyboard. Uh, it's actually a, a fine way, scientists tell us, of actually learning what we think. So it allows us to use all parts of our brain and spirit rather than constantly being pressured by the presence of others in the room as we're communicating. So it's a discipline. I've journaled all of my life, for example, and I, certainly all of my clients are encouraged. Uh, I encourage them to journal. And I also encourage them to blog uh, because I know that when they're writing, they're actually gaining understanding. So that's one way, uh, one reason uh, to gain clarity. The other reason is because in the course of normal communication, the parts that I think are the most important that is, the ways in which we can garner trust from other people, those aren't natural to us uh, in the heat of battle, whether it's a battle in a business environment or uh, in a political campaign. So by preparing ahead of time, by thinking through an issue and including elements that would build trust, we build our, our habit, we build our own muscles in that arena so that when we're alive and in real time, we won't forget that. We'll include that, and we'll be able to um, build our own empathetic muscle to a greater degree. So all of those reasons are why I suggest uh, writing. If uh, if I get pushback on it, and I frequently do, I do get my clients to start by journaling, and then I'll use their journals to point out why they should be writing uh, more frequently, and that seems to do the trick. 
I like the story you tell about Matt Hyde from REI and how he put so much time into crafting the messages that he gives at a, at a live presentation, but then how that serves him well. It seems like a big investment of time, but it not only serves him at those moments where he's speaking with prepared thoughts, but when he needs to speak off the cuff, as you said, it, he's already worked those muscles and he has the words he needs and the, the authentic messages at those moments when he's standing up in front of people. Yeah, Matt's a rare guy. He's a he's a really interesting, introspective, and yet extroverted human being who now, by the way, is no longer with REI. He actually is the, the chief executive officer at West Marine and uh, is doing very well and very good work. Matt tells me, and he told me when we were speaking about this, that it takes him about an hour to write and prepare for every minute of a presentation. The good news is, though, that he will use a lot of material that he's already written and plug it in so that while the topic may be different, some of the supporting stories and certainly some of the supporting techniques that he would use to connect with a group uh, emotionally are constant. That sounds a lot like the way you describe a personal leadership guide too. how you put certain thought into preparing for that, but then it gives you a lot of the tools that you're going to put into place throughout your leadership activities. What specifically is a, a personal leadership communication guide? Well, it's, it's, it is a tool. You've put your, your finger right on it. Uh, it's, uh, what I've done is develop a framework that has certain elements to it. And, uh, and then I've laid those, those elements out. And uh, the guide contains a narrative about all of the elements in the guide so that I'm sure that when the guide is complete, that whoever the leader is has all the tools that he or she would need, all of the information, uh, the stories, the narrative, the reflections, the metaphor, the symbols, um, the data uh, that they would need to communicate in any venue uh, using any media. So uh, once a personal leadership communication guide is done, uh, it becomes the basis for the content for emails, for off-the-cuff remarks, for conversations by the water cooler, or even for speeches to you know thousands of people. Um, so it's a discipline for them. And uh, the other thing that it does is once that you've done it, uh, it changes your thought pattern so that in communication situations, you tend to see the elements of the framework uh, as they come up in natural conversation. And it's easier for you to note what is missing. And then you can go right to that section, uh, those thoughts that you had that you wrote down. And basically, you'll be saying something like, oh, I see the problem. Uh, this person just, for example, doesn't have enough context. I need to really go back and, and tell the story of how this, what, where we've been and where we are is the basis for where we're going. So it becomes that kind of a tool. Uh, the other thing that it, that it has, and I don't want to minimize this because it's the primary reason it has the word personal in it, is because, uh, you know, I said on the previous show when we were talking that it's imperative for leaders to inspire that they know themselves, that they've done some self-reflection. So the subtitle to the sub-name of the Personal Leadership Communication Guide is a biography with a purpose. So I want to make sure that there's enough of the leader's personal values embedded in the guide so that he or she can bring those out when it's appropriate and in ways that will really inspire others. Does a leader need a single guide or one for every major change effort? Well, of course, the content will change with every major change effort, but the surrounding material will 
in some cases be very, very consistent. So for example, we were talking about Matt Hyde and you know many of my other clients, they do journal now. And what they'll do is record things that impress them during the day. This is not a formal process. It might be just a few notes you know, in a notepad, uh, stories that they ran across, people that they met, things that they were impressed with, thoughts they had, so that that becomes grist for the guide. And then they'll have the guides themselves. So if, if I were trying to create a new organization uh, that looked a certain way, I would certainly create a guide for that particular change that would have all of the elements in it. But it would be salted with stories that represent my values. It would be salted with elements that I normally wouldn't use if I were trying to be spontaneous. So in that sense, every guide has a large piece that translates to the next one. It's also true that once you've done one, as I said, you kind of change your way of thinking. So you have a model in your mind and you can go to various places when you need to. How does this personal guide fit with an organizational communication strategy? For example, when helping a large employer communicate a change to its employees, we create a a communication strategy that outlines the organization's communication objectives, stakeholders, key messages, and so forth. If a leader decides, yes, I need a personal communication guide, how does that fit in with the organizational strategy? Well, actually, usually a strategy is is, uh, aimed at just exactly, obviously, this is what you do for a living, and I understand you do it quite well. Within that framework, you'll have uh, certain messages that you want to convey. Now, those messages are, in general, their objective, and what the guide does is help to refine or to granulate uh, the strategy. So once, uh, once the strategy is in place, now we need to put content in it and we need to personalize it because leaders are each going to have um, their own way of conveying what they need to convey to get the result of the strategy accomplished. So that's how the personal communication guide fits in. It's uh, once that framework of the strategy is in place, uh, the guide becomes a natural next step for particularly for key executives to create. That makes sense. So you're making it personal for the the key executives and other leaders who need to be spokespeople as part of the change effort or, or the progress effort. Yes, because everybody won't have the same stories. You know, everybody will have a different way uh, or a different, a little different content in the way they they put forth uh, the effort. So you know, any more than you know, I couldn't tell your stories uh, any more than you could tell mine. Mm-hmm. But we would both have individual stories that would have the same effect. Now, you recommend four sections in a personal communication guide. The first section is building trustworthiness. What are some examples of the content that we would include in that section? There's a reason why this is first in the guide, uh, because it's the one that's most often left out, and in my view, one of the most essential. Competence and trustworthiness includes, under the competence label, a clarity of purpose. You know, are we really clear uh, what the problem is? and what the specific change that we're advocating is going to be. Uh, Frequently, people talk around that and never really get to the real nut of what it is. We have to have, at at the outset, at least some note that at some point we recognize that there was a problem. So there's a little bit of evidence here of this compelling need. And then there's also the very broad implication of the change that we're, we're advocating. Kind of a a broad gauge, if we do this, here's what's going to happen. If we don't do it, this is what's going to happen. And here's the value that we're representing in moving ahead with this initiative. 
So that's some of the competence side. In addition to that, there are credentials and there are vulnerabilities. So one looks at, okay, well, this particular kind of effort, uh, I've had experience with this in the past. What would it be? What kind of credentials would followers need to know about me in order to at least uh, suggest that I might be competent to lead this kind of an effort? The trustworthiness, though, and this is the more important one to me, and you got right to it, uh, this is the one that's most often left out. And when we objectify it, when we actually start to write things down, we have a much better opportunity of seeing the opportunity for these for building trust as we as we communicate. For example, we know that we want to display empathy when we're having communication, but what does that mean? What are the ways in which people can actually display empathy and know that they're trustworthy? Uh, one way, for example, is to express gratitude. Uh, another is to acknowledge resistance before it's voiced. So by giving people the knowledge that you understand there are different points of view in the world and different uh, in the room and different feelings about this particular initiative, you'll go a long way toward establishing yourself as someone who's empathetic and therefore worthy of trust, finding commonality in purpose. Also, your own willingness to be known and to put elements in the communication that would allow people to know really who you are. Like, what is your personal motivation here? What's the personal value that it seems to be important to you in the individual effort? These are all things that when you write them down, you have to think about them. So that's the first element uh, or the first section of the guide and probably uh, the most difficult one for, for most uh, executives to uh, deal with. One of the stories that you tell in the book that I think that illustrates this well is Mario Cuomo when he was governor of New York speaking at Notre Dame on the topic of abortion, he was speaking to a group that probably at the beginning of the conversation was not very willing to listen to him based on his stance. And uh, he did that in a way that had a lot of empathy. And I think by the time he was done with his introduction, they were willing to listen to what he had to say. The combined administration and faculty of Notre Dame had asked Cuomo to speak about abortion rights. And this was at a time right after the bishops had actually written a letter that was considered political and published it in the New York Times, uh, urging governmental action, uh, which was highly unusual for the church to do that. So if you don't mind, I'll just read that segment, because I think the audience, as you're listening to this, you get the idea that by showing this vulnerability, Cuomo opens up the possibility for greater dialogue. Sure. Uh, he says, he says briefly, he says this, he said, let me begin this part of the effort by underscoring the obvious. I don't speak here as a theologian. I don't have that competence. And I don't speak as a philosopher either, because to suggest that I could would set a new record for false pride. And I don't presume to speak as a good person, except in the ontological sense of the word. But I do speak here as a politician and also as a Catholic, a layperson baptized and raised in the pre-Vatican II church, educated in Catholic schools, attached to the church first by birth, then by choice, and now by love. An old-fashioned Catholic who sins, regrets, struggles, worries, gets confused, and most of the time feels better after confession. The Catholic Church is my spiritual home, my heart is there, and my hope. I really don't care who you are. You couldn't hear this, even as a practicing Catholic that was so-called pro-life. Uh, I don't believe you could hear that and not grasp the empathy in the man and give him the right to be heard. Uh, it put him directly in the center of this group that he was speaking to, and I think it was a brilliant piece of writing, and of course uh, had the effect that he wanted it to. It definitely went a long way toward building trustworthiness there. 
So that's the first section. Now the second section is creating shared context. What does that mean? Well, it, uh, it, it suggests that uh, the leader um, sees things differently. If you want to make a substantial change in the way things are, you've studied the problem, you have all the facts, you kind of know the history, um, but the people who are you're asking to come along with you and to implement are not that privileged. They don't have that same point of view. It's like the leader is standing on the bow of the ship looking out and can see the waves and the weather and the sharks and the pirates and everything else, has the entire story, can look forward, can look aft. But most people are more like uh, they're down in the third deck below, and their view is out of a little bitty porthole. All they see are the things that affect them, sometimes just immediately. So the idea of creating shared context is to be able to tell the story of where we've been and where we are as the basis for where we're going. And that includes the history of an issue. I usually like to cut the history up in two or three sections that, you know, how has this issue been over the last X amount of time and what changes have we made to get us to where we are and then make sure that we're clear about the priority of what we're suggesting that that we believe that the the action that we're suggesting uh, is going to affect other things in a positive way uh, be sure that everyone uh, understands the current reality and then uh, reinforce your own competence and trustworthiness by revealing where did you come into this movie uh, when did you arrive? At what point? What was the state of this particular problem? And then you can articulate the kind of broader perspective of how uh, you believe it's going to be impactful as you go forward. So context is history, priority, current reality, and the reinforcement of confidence and trust. All of this is necessary because if people don't understand it, then they may go through the motions. If they do understand it, uh, they'll have the entire uh, surrounding uh, story to reinforce their own uh, belief and action and uh, supporting it. Yeah, that makes good sense. And I, I really I identified with Mike McMullen, who you talk about in the book, when he was general manager of the chemical analysis group of Agilent Technologies. He stepped into that that role there with a challenging situation, and you shared the excerpts from his personal guide. And I was really able to feel like I understood his, that shared context at the end of that and thought, yeah, this is a, a leader I could get behind and, and support this direction that he wants to take us. Yes. And, you know, th- this became even more important to Mike as he got down the road in that particular situation. He walked into a, um, an organization that was basically in a, you know, in a, in a turnaround mode. They were thought of as uh, kind of hold our own and and ride the curves downward. And uh, later on, as he was instituting growth and actually generating what at that time was the largest acquisition in uh, Agilent's history when they bought Varian uh, to help uh, kind of revitalize this organization, uh, people that weren't there in the beginning didn't have an appreciation of how far it had come and why it was necessary. So Mike used this particular part of the guide as, uh, to a real advantage to build understanding, not just in the organization itself, but in, on the board of directors. So that's creating shared context. Now, the third section is describing the future. And you say that leaders essentially do the same work as a prophet. What do you mean by that? Yeah, you actually left one word out there because it's not just describing it, it's declaring it. And it's in the declaration phase that leaders share, in my view, share 
the elements of the prophet, and by prophet, of course, we mean PH, uh, not PR. When I went through school, I took a lot of religious philosophy and actually got enough hours to get a minor in it. And I was always curious about the argument of whether prophets, you know, biblical prophets or religious prophets, whether they, whether they predicted the future or created it. And I always came down on the side of creation because as we look at these great changes in human history that have come about, like uh, you know the freeing of the slaves or the the um, the Reformation or uh, even something as as local as uh, us you know sending a man on the moon uh, man of the moon, uh, these were all started by declaration and and declaration actually created a uh, uh, a situation. Uh, that then then had to be manifested, but it started with the Declaration, just as in the Declaration of Independence. I mean, uh, we hold these truths to be self-evident. Uh, they're not self-evident, and in fact, uh, at the time the Declaration of Independence uh, was written and said something audacious like that all men are created equal uh, and are endowed with certain inalienable rights, uh, the truth was that that all men didn't, and certainly all men and women didn't have rights. In fact. Uh, basically, it was white men with property had rights. Uh, so that declaration was pretty audacious, and it took us, you know, a couple, three hundred years or two hundred, two hundred years so far uh, to get to a point where we're actually making it uh, true. So that's what I meant by that. And leaders perform in all stripes perform that same act when they declare and describe a future. Now, obviously, none of us get to play on that biggest stage, or few of us anyway. But but actually declaring that the company or our organization is going to look like this in five years or in eight years or when we finish with this initiative is a very strong statement of possibility. And then we need to be able in our imagination to create it in the minds of others, to share it in a way that they see themselves in it. These are pretty soft skills. The declaration is not, but the describing uh, is something that is, uh, is uh, difficult for many people to do. Uh, who see themselves as uh, kind of board science. So uh, uh, I really emphasize this business of imagining a future and, and painting that picture in a way that others can see themselves in it. That's pretty powerful. Now, the fourth section is committing to action. That sounds simple. It's time to act, to tell people what to do. But you point out that many leaders fail to engage people in action because they don't offer their own personal action. Sure. Uh, we often hear, you know, action is eloquence. And of course, I believe that to be true. After all of this guide is complete, um, it really comes down to this. And in fact, often my own clients will use this guide as a way of inspiring themselves. And when they get to the end of it, as many of us do when we write, you know, we'll look back at it and we'll say, gee, you know, that's pretty good. I, 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 what am I going to do about this? Uh, you know, how, uh, how can I put myself in this so that my commitment comes through? Uh, what am I willing to bet? What action am I going to take? Um, I tell a story in the book, and uh, you and I, Jesse, share a love of, of uh, physical activity, and I'm quite a bit older than you are, so I'm on the downward slope of that. But in 1989, I ran across the United States with a group of people that set the record for that distance. Uh, it was a relay. We uh, ran from San Francisco to Washington, D.C., and we were on the verge of setting the record. This was a you know, night and day thing. We were into the run about 15 days. And we were sitting outside of uh, Washington, D.C. in an RV waiting for our runner to come down the road and uh, take the baton. And the problem was that we were on the loop. And um, there were actually 
ruts in the side of the road where we were sitting, uh, where 18 wheelers had run off the road. It was a very dangerous situation. It was about four o'clock in the morning. It was raining very hard. And it was obviously pitch black. And uh, we were debating uh, what we should do. Our advisor in D.C. by radio was telling us that we should stop and uh, wait for daylight. Uh, we knew that we could stop and still break the record, but we had been nonstop since San Francisco. So in a way, it was morally debilitating for us to do that. And as we were sitting there discussing it, the leader of the group, a fellow named Andy Mecca, later went on to be the drug czar of California, um, uh, you know, stood up. We saw the runner coming down this you know, black road in the rain with, with wind blowing and approaching our uh, our RV and it was our turn to take the baton and in the middle of the discussion Andy just opened the door and stepped out <laughs> and and as, as I as I tell that story uh, I'm also reliving it uh, because it was so emotional and so inspiring uh, he didn't want to talk about it uh, he just stepped out took the baton and kept it until daylight uh, and then the rest of us picked it up and ran it on into DC so it's it's that commitment that speaks so loudly, and that's what I mean by the importance of action. You know, anywhere we look at the great leaders, you know, uh, Sadat didn't want to hear about more discussion. He said, I'm going to the Knesset, and he did. Your story of, of Andy, that didn't even require any words. He just acted, and that just spoke volumes. But as you're creating your, your personal communication guide, you're actually at this point saying, okay, so this is the, I've just declared and described the future. Now here is what I intend to do. This is what I, I my personal commitment. And you describe maybe your, your immediate next step or, or several steps down that. And then you, you, you suggest that the other part that a lot of leaders often leave out is a call for specific actions that everyday individuals can take. What's an example of that? You know, it can be something really simple, but my criteria for that are that it should be something they could do immediately and something that will be at least symbolic of their commitment to move on beyond that. I know, uh, for example, one of my teachers is a Benedictine monk named David Steinelrest. Brother David is an ad, just a, a real advocacy for the environment. He's a, he's a zealot in that regard. He spoke about this at a conference I was at in Switzerland, and it was a, at, a, at a resort community. Uh, he spoke about the need to be mindful in every little way about what we do uh, that affects the environment. And uh, he got a standing ovation when he finished talking. But the real story was that at the end, he said, well, we all have to decide what we're going to do about this. And uh, the next morning, as we were making our way to breakfast, as everyone were making our way to breakfast, Brother David uh, was seen in the quad of this resort with a bag in his hand picking up litter, picking up little paper bags and pieces of cigarettes and other things and putting them in the bag. And he took that bag with him to breakfast and put it in the garbage can. By the end of that conference, literally hundreds of people were getting up every morning, getting little bags and going out and demonstrating their commitment by picking up the litter that was left in the resort. So that's one example of something that people could do immediately that would be demonstrative, that would show their commitment. Now, in a corporate environment, obviously, it, it comes off a little different. As we're developing the guide, we're deciding what it is that we want to do. What kind of action could we take? You might say, for example, look, for the, for the next year, I've asked to be relieved of everything else that I'm doing so that I can focus on this. And I'm going to put 100% of my compensation uh, on the success of this operation beginning today. And you can count on me 
uh, to be there for you in any way that I can. Here's what I would ask of all of you. You know, have a look at your own workload. Um, see what it is that you can shift so that we can give the highest priority possible to this project. And maybe by Friday, send me an email. Let me know what you've discovered about it uh, and how you can clear a little bit more of your own schedule to focus on this. That seems minor. But once people get into the action step, then you've started the momentum toward actually creating what it is that you want to create. Well, I love that. And, and taking that level of specificity, even though it may seem minor, you're basically moving this change effort beyond just a big organizational reform that's really beyond the ability of, of any single person to make happen, which a lot of times that's when a leader describes the future, it sort of sounds like that. And so you just get the idea that, well, they're going to make this happen, and so I'll just go along with it. But you're asking for a simple, definitive action on their part, and it basically seals the bargain. Yes. In fact, it's, uh, it's a lot of precedent for it. Uh, perhaps the most eloquent one uh, in my lifetime has been uh, when Kennedy you know, made the declaration to go to the moon. Because uh, my favorite part of that whole declaration was when he said, uh, because if we make this decision, uh, it's a commitment not only uh, of mine and the government, but by every citizen, every person in the armed service, everyone who goes to work every morning, because we as a nation will be going, not just one man. And I, I, think that, I think that woke people up and kind of grasped our imaginations. And we were all looking around the next day to say, well, you know, how am I going to get engaged in this? Hmm. Uh, it, it, it was really very exciting and, of course, a great example of how uh, something like that actually takes place and occurs. Yeah, it really is. It's amazing. Toward the end of the book, after you've shared all the details about what goes into the guide, you boil the whole thing down to a single concept, an overriding responsibility that, okay, we've talked about a lot of specifics, but there's one thing to keep in mind. Well, the one thing that is true uh, uh, and is a constant throughout all of my work, frankly, it was in the subtitle of, of the first uh, edition of this book. It was the, uh, the credible speaker, the authentic leader, and the word authenticity has been core uh, to everything that I've done. In fact, when I wrote the first edition uh, the word authentic and leadership only appeared in one book, and it was actually out of the University of Minnesota by a man who's inspired me all of my life. His name is Robert Terry. Uh, and since then, uh, unfortunately, the word has become a cliche. I, uh, I went on to Google just before I started this edition and Googled the term authentic leadership, and there were a million eight hundred thousand hits. Uh, and shortly before uh, I started the manuscript, I was at a conference where my own table uh, when asked by the moderator to take one word out of the leadership lexicon and throw it away, they chose authentic. <laughs> so <laughs> I guess it's become a cliche. But but it's so important that uh, we reach inside of ourselves, know who we are, and bring that forward uh, in the world. Now, that sounds like a spiritual concept, and it is. I really believe that we're here with a, with a purpose, that we discover that, and that we play it out. And in that, we we fulfill our life and find our greatest happiness. And I think that's true of leaders. Uh, once they can discover who they are uh, and discover what matters to them and then begin to express that and stay on that track of being authentic and within themselves, uh, that's the greatest gift. The rest of it are just the tools and the skills to make it happen. So authenticity continues for me to be the coin of the realm. 
Well, I love the way you put it in the book. And you say your overriding responsibility as a leader is to be present in the communication rather than beside it. And back at my earlier question to you about how does a personal communication guide fit with an organizational communication strategy for a, a given change effort, I think that that describes it pretty well. That you, you may go through the steps of defining, okay, what's the change we're going to do and what are the key messages we need to send about that? But all that is is rather hollow and impersonal. And creating this guide makes sure that you as a leader, when you are communicating and leading the actual change, that you are truly present in all this instead of just being beside the communication tactics that are taking place. Yeah, you know, Jesse, you put it better than anyone I've heard. And uh, that, that's exactly right. And of course, it's that presence that uh, is so attractive to other people and inspires them. Uh, when they meet someone who knows who they are and actually can articulate it uh, in the context of the work they do in the world, that's inspiring. And uh, I might say you're one of those people. I've really, uh, really enjoyed this interaction. Well, thanks, Terry. I have too. So again, a written personal leadership communication guide can help eliminate fuzzy thinking so you can lead a change effort with greater clarity and greater passion. The basic components of a personal leadership communication guide are establishing competence and building trustworthiness, creating shared context, declaring and describing the future, and committing to action. Terry Pierce, author of the new edition of the best-selling book, Leading Out Loud, thanks for joining us today. My pleasure, Jesse. I hope we get a chance to connect on the road sometime. It'd be fun to work with you. Absolutely. For our listeners who'd like to know more about leadership communication and how to create your own personal leadership communication guide, Terry's book is Leading Out Loud, a guide for engaging others in creating the future. This book is the basis for graduate courses taught at universities around the world, and a corporate training course is also available around the world. In our show notes for this episode, we'll provide a link to the book and information about bringing the training course to your organization. You can find those notes at engagingleader.com forward slash 37. And while you're on the show notes page, please provide your thoughts or questions in the comments section, or you can connect with us on Facebook, LinkedIn, or Twitter. In case you missed it, be sure to listen to our first conversation with Terry Pierce in episode 37 when we discussed why communication is the most essential leadership skill, along with three cornerstones of leadership communication. You can find it at engagingleader.com forward slash 33 or in iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast directory. This is a production of Asmodale Communications, a consulting firm where my colleagues and I partner with mid-size and large employers to attract top talent, engage employees, and deliver superior business results. Find out more at AspendaleCommunications.com. Our thanks to Joe Sherwood, our producer, James Marler, our sound engineer, Cliff Ravenscraft, our podcasting advisor, Rick Tarrant, our announcer, and Christopher Seal, who composed our theme music. Until next time, remember, whether you realize it or not, you are always communicating and leading. Let's make the most of our opportunities to engage the people we care about.